So when we began our study of the book of Ephesians several weeks ago, I told you that the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are very much theological in nature as they help us understand our position in God or our position before God as we are in Christ. And today, much like last week, this is going to be one of those days when we spend some time understanding a particular theological doctrine. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on a doctrine this morning, and you'll be, I'm sure, enriched for having done that. But in the New Testament, there are about a half a dozen or so legal words that are used to explain the procedure of our salvation. And I'm going to help you understand one of those words this morning. But I'd first like to share with you a story about someone named Zuzu. Zuzu was a two-year-old German shepherd mix who, along with her father, lived with a family in the L.A. area. And one day, Zuzu's father became ill, and he died. And as often happens, the once happy and energetic Zuzu became very depressed, and she would just lay around, and she wouldn't eat, and she just was very sad. And one day, her owners let her go outside to the backyard, and there was a fence around the yard, and Zuzu jumped over the fence that was around the family yard, and she ran away from home. And it wasn't long before Zuzu was picked up by animal control a short distance away, and she was promptly delivered to the Downey Animal Control Center, where she remained for quite some time. Videos from cameras that were on the premises taken of the dog during her captivity show her sitting alone and shivering in the corner of a fenced-in play area where there's grass and a lot of other dogs running around and playing freely, yet Zuzu sat in the corner of the fenced-in area, shivering and shaking, frightened, feeling alone, feeling depressed. She sat there for some time, just shaking, never playing, never looking up, and soon her time would run out, and Zuzu would be euthanized. But one day, as the dog sat there, depressed in her corner of the play area, suddenly she jumped to her feet, and she began barking. And she began wagging her tail. And in excitement, she would spin around and around in circles, just barking and barking. And another camera showed video of a man and woman who were walking into the building, into the animal shelter. And as they made their way into the area where the dogs were detained, Zuzu ran up to them and she began to jump up and down onto the cyclone fence that separated the two of them. She began to jump up and down along the fence, reaching for those people who were on the other side of the fence. And there was absolutely no doubt, obviously, who these people were, right? These people were her owners. And she was so happy to see them that she was jumping and and barking and wagging her tail and she was all excited to see her owners. And a worker approached the couple and said, Are you here to pick up your dog today? And the couple extended their hands to the dog and began licking at their fingers through the fence as she continued to jump on the fence. And the couple responded to the worker, No, she's no fun anymore. We want a new dog. And they walked off, leaving the once depressed and now elated Zuzu jumping at the fence behind them. And as you can imagine... The heartless and callous behavior of the couple left everybody in an outrage. Soon the video, which it was just gut-wrenching to watch, soon the video had gone viral and it was even aired by Inside Edition. It had been all over the news all across the country, being carried as far away as New York City and even over into Europe and and in England. And everybody was outraged. I want to introduce you to Judith 
and Russ. Very nice couple from the L.A. area. Judith and Russ saw the outrageous video and they wasted absolutely no time. They saw the video and they knew instantly. They devised a plan before they even got off of their sofa. Before they even left their house, they wasted absolutely no time. They had already designed a plan in their mind. See, they were going to leave the comfort of their home. They were going to get up. They were going to make their way down to the Downey Animal Control Center. And there they were going to pick up Zuzu. And so off they went. And when they arrived, they didn't need to shop around. They knew where they were going. They knew who they were going to pick out. The workers didn't even have to ask them, would you like to view any other animals? There was no need to do that. Certainly, there were many other beautiful dogs with very sad stories running around in the shelter. But the new, but the new people were not interested in those dogs. They were on a mission. They were going there and they called Zuzu out by name. They knew why they had gone there. They said, we are here to get Zuzu. They signed the paperwork. They paid the money and they took her home. And now Zuzu was a part of their family. She was a part of their family. And she was given all the rights of the family. And I'm told that she's allowed now to go anywhere that she wants to go in her new house. In fact, she even finds herself a lot of times lying on the couch with her head in the lap of her new owners. And I just wonder, if Zuzu were given the choice between her first owners and her second owners, where do you think she would want to live? Whose family do you think that she would want to be a part of? I wonder about that. I wonder where she would choose to live. And what you've just heard is a nice illustration of the legal word that I'd like to share with us today. It's the theological concept of redemption, and I want you to understand this concept. It's very important. But before we jump into our passage this morning, I just want to remind you where we are in our study of the book of Ephesians. If you are new with us this morning, I want you to know we've been in the book of Ephesians now for three weeks. It's our third sermon in this outstanding book and we're going to be here for quite some time but we began by noting the endless resource that is available to those of us who are a part of the body of Christ the unending resource that's available to all of us the riches that are available to us because we have believed that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and we now are in Christ and because of that we noted that in his love for us God called us out before he formed the universe and he devised a plan to restore us to fellowship. He came out and somehow in his eternal mind we learned that he elects us and yet we are still able to come to him as an act of our own will. Somehow in God's eternal mind that works out. And in verse 5 he tells us that he has adopted us and he has accepted us into his family and he has made us co-heirs how in Christ so we are now co-heirs in Christ and we just like Zuzu have all the rights of family members we have all the rights of a son what Jesus Christ has we have what Jesus Christ owns we own what is his is ours and so I want to move now with you this morning to our passage which is in verse 7 and we're going to read all the way through verse 10 And this is what it says. It says, in him, and that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. Now, 
As we get started, in verse 7 alone, we find three keys to understanding the concept of redemption. There are three keys in verse 7 alone to understanding this concept of redemption. But this concept is so basic and it is so foundational to your faith that we have to take the time to make sure that you fully grasp it. We have to make sure that you fully understand it. It is a critical piece to understanding your relationship to God, which is found where? In Christ. So we must understand that. So to help you understand, I want to take you to the Greek language for a few minutes if I could do that. As all of you know, the New Testament was written in Greek, and if we want to make sure that we understand the text properly, sometimes we have to pause and take a look at the original language, and so I want to do that this morning if you'd allow me to do that. But in the New Testament, there are two words which are translated as redeem or redemption. Keep that in mind. There are two words which are translated as redeem or redemption. One of them is found in the books of Galatians and also in the book of Revelation. And it is the verb ex agorazo. Ex agorazo. And it comes from the noun agora, which is a marketplace. The agora was the marketplace. So the verb then ex agorazo is to buy something out of the marketplace. How many of you know what Kohl's cash is? How many of you have ever, yeah, every single one of you know what Kohl's cash is, don't you? Kohl's cash. So when you have Kohl's cash and you take it to Kohl's and you redeem your cash, that's ex agorazo. You are redeeming it out of the marketplace. You're taking it to the marketplace and you're using your Kohl's cash to redeem something and bring it out of the marketplace. You're redeeming it. That's ex agorazo. Now, the other verb to redeem is the verb that is found here in verse 7. And this is very important for us to understand. It's the verb apolutrao. And it is a derivative of the verb luo, which means to loosen. Okay? So apolutrao then means to be, I'm just going to give you the official definition for you. It means to be released or to be freed or to be loosened from bondage upon payment of a ransom. You see it? This is important. Apolutrao means to be released or freed or loosened from bondage upon the payment of a ransom. So in this definition, this word has implicit in its meaning a sense of captivity from which someone needs to be freed or from which someone needs to obtain their freedom. Do you understand what I'm saying? So Zuzu is a great example of that, isn't she? Zuzu is a wonderful example of that. Here she is. She's held captive and she could not be freed until someone came and paid the price or paid the ransom for her freedom and then she would be released by her captors. She had been apolutrao. She had been paid for with a ransom and her freedom then had been earned because of that. And in this case, the ransom had been paid to the Downing Animal Control Center of LA. So the logical question then, the logical question that should come to your mind right now is, Scott, what are you talking about? How does this pertain to me? What have I been freed from? What is it that has held me captive? And so I want to take a minute to help you understand that. The first thing, friends, that you need to understand is that everyone, all of humanity, every single person who has ever lived and died, who has ever taken a breath, is captive. We are all captive. I want you to understand that when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, they became captives, they became prisoners of sin. All of humanity who followed after them are likewise born into the captivity of sin. We are born into the captivity, the, the slavehood of sin. 
We are born into decay. We are born into the decay of sin. We are born into the bondage of sin. We are born with a nature that is evil. We are born with a nature that is corrupt. And that nature separates us from God. Do you understand? Paul says... In Romans chapter 6 and verse 17, this is what he says. He says, we are all slaves to sin. Do you see the imagery there? We are all slaves to sin, he says. In chapter 7 and verse 14 in the book of Romans, he says that we, just like slaves, are sold under sin. Do you see that? So we are slaves to sin, we are sold under sin, and then in chapter 8 and verse 21, he writes that we are in bondage to decay. Do you see what he's saying here? Where does the decay come from? Decay comes from what? Sin. Sin is the beginning, the genesis of decay. And then in Romans 3, 9, this is what he writes, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are what? We are under sin. So we are captive to sin. We are bound to the control of sin. We are in bondage to sin. Do you see the message that he's trying to give us here? He's trying, he deliberately uses this language so that you will understand the severity of your bondage to sin. He wants to use this metaphor of slavery so you understand how deeply you are controlled in your nature by sin. He's saying that sin is your owner. You are a slave to sin. It owns you. It sells you. It does what it wants with you. It controls you. You're in captivity to it. And how extensive is it? How many people does it capture? How many people does it own? Who does it control? It owns absolutely everyone. What does Romans 3.23 say? It says, for how many have sinned? All have sinned. Everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. And if you go to 1 John 1.8, I like this. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we do what? We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And that's to say we're liars. If you say that you have not sinned, the truth is not in you. And basically, you're a liar. That's what it comes down to. Because you are controlled by sin, don't deny it. So we see that we have all sinned. And then I love the way Jesus sums it up in John chapter 8 and verse 34. I want you to listen to this. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is what? He is a slave to sin. If you commit sin, you are a slave to sin. That's what Jesus says. So Jesus says, if you commit sin, and Paul very clearly says, every single one of us do, and the Bible says, in fact, that you're liars if you claim otherwise. So what does that tell you? It tells you that every single one of us is a slave to sin. We are all slaves to sin. It's the distasteful reality of your sinful nature. That's who you are, whether you like it or not. You're a slave to sin. You're born that way. We're just like Zuzu. We're locked up. We're under its control. We can't get away from it. It might cause us to be depressed. We might sit around and mope over it. We might be all broken hearted about it. We know that there's no hope for us. We know that we'll never get out of our captivity to sin. What I want to do, those are the things I end up not doing. But what I end up doing are the things I don't want to do because I'm under the control of sin, Paul says. There's no freedom for me. I'm bound up. I have absolutely no hope of getting free. And while we sit in our captivity, we sit there sad. We sit there alone. And on occasion, we think that we have found some hope. We think, that we have found some level of joy as we sit there in our captivity to sin. We sometimes think that we found some good news. Maybe we find a relationship that brings us some level of joy. Or maybe we find some vocational and financial success 
in our sin, and we think that that brings us a level of joy. Maybe we find something else, who knows? But ultimately, we find that just like Zuzu, and just like Zuzu's owners, sin leaves us feeling abandoned, and sin leaves us feeling all alone. Though it might present us with just one fleeting moment of joy, the next thing you know, it walks off and it has nothing left to offer us, and we still feel alone, we still feel empty, just as badly as we did before we began. We feel abandoned. It offers us a fleeting sense of false hope. It offers us a fleeting sense of joy. And then looming large at the end of our time is what? Death. We know it's there. We know that it's coming because we know that we are captive to this. Sometimes I hear people say in surprise, can you believe that so-and-so would have done something like that? Can you believe that he would have done something as terrible as that? Or how could she say something so mean and so hurtful as that? Can you believe that she would have said something like that? And I think to myself, what do you expect? What do you expect? She is a sinner. What do you expect? He is a sinner. Why would you be surprised by their inclination to sin? Why would you be surprised if they fall to their inclination to sin? They are sinners and that's what sinners do. Why would you be surprised to hear that sinners do what sinners do? I mean, that's who they are. Of course they make sinful decisions. They are captive. They are held in captivity to sin. They are slaves to it. They can't do anything else. So why would you expect them to do anything other than that? They are held in captivity to sin. They're in bondage to it. We shouldn't be surprised when people who are held captivity to sin sin. That's what they're doing. That's what they do. They're held captive. That's what we do. So sin then... Just like the animal control center, it holds us captive. Now, if we were to define redemption, we would say something like this. It is deliverance from bondage by the payment of a price, okay? So so redemption is deliverance from bondage by the payment of a price. Now, I want to take you back to verse 7, and I want you to see what that price is. Let's go back to Ephesians 1 and verse 7, and it says this, In Him we have redemption, where? Through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So in Christ, we have redemption, or we have the liberation from our sin. How? Look at verse 7. Through His blood, which is just another way of saying by His death. When the Bible talks about the blood of Christ, it's talking about the death of Christ. So what does Romans 6.23 tell us? It tells us that the wage of sin is what? It's death. The wage of sin is death. What does Hebrews say in Hebrews 9.22? Without the shedding of blood, there is what? No forgiveness of sin. So Hebrews says once again, when we speak about the shedding of blood, we're speaking of death. So Hebrews says, without death, there is no forgiveness of sin. So in a nutshell, that's what redemption is. Okay, so that's what redemption is. It's deliverance from the bondage of sin by the payment of a price. And that price is death. As many of us has believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we are in Christ, and we have already obtained that redemption. We have already obtained that liberation from the captivity of sin at the price of the death of Jesus Christ. We have already received that. 
That is a theological understanding of redemption. In a practical sense, if we look at verse 7, redemption means the forgiveness of your sins, it says. Redemption is the forgiveness of your sins or of your trespasses. But there is something else that you need to see here. Take a look at verse 7 again, and then I want you to see just the last few words, and then we're going to move into verse 8. So take a look at this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Okay, now look at this. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now listen closely, my friends. If there is anything that I can send you home with from our message today, it's this. So please listen closely. We have forgiveness of our sin according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. Did you get that? We have forgiveness of our sin according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. How rich, I want to ask you, is the richness of his grace? How rich is the richness of his grace? It is to that extent, whatever extent the richness of his grace is, it is to that extent that he has given us forgiveness. Do you see that? He has given us forgiveness to whatever that extent is. So I want to take you now to Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to show you something from verse 5. When we were dead in our trespasses, He, that is God, made us alive together with Christ. Now I want you to skip down to verse 7. There's a little parenthetical statement in there. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, He might show, look, the what? immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. His forgiveness of our sin is in accordance with the riches of his grace, right? The riches of his grace are what? Immeasurable. Do you get this? So in accordance with the riches of his grace, which are immeasurable, you have forgiveness for your sin. You have forgiveness for your trespasses. Ephesians 1.8 tells us that not only does he forgive us according to his immeasurable grace, but you know what he does? He lavishes it upon us. Do you see that? This is so important. He is overly abundant. He lavishes his immeasurable Grace. It's not just that it's immeasurable. It's that He is overly abundant. His grace to forgive you of your sin is immeasurable. And He just slops it out all over you. He just pours it out all over you. He takes you and He just bathes you in it. He completely covers you in His forgiveness extravagantly. He lavishes His forgiveness on you immeasurably. Do you see that? He is rich in His forgiveness. He just covers you and covers you and covers covers you in his forgiveness immeasurably we know that we're sinners we get that we can all identify that about us we all know that we get things wrong don't we but wait a minute scott you don't understand some of the terrible terrible things that i've done i've done some things that are absolutely horrible yes i know that you have because i have too right i know that you have and they're all an offense to god It's all egregious to him. But listen, he has already made provision for it. The provision is already there. He's already gushed his forgiveness out and he has just poured it and lavished it all over you. He has bathed you in it. He has completely covered you in his forgiveness. So immeasurably he has bathed you in his forgiveness. There's nothing remaining. There's nothing left. There's nothing left for you to be forgiven for because he's already bathed you and just gushed his forgiveness out on you. Do you see that? 
This is so important. He made the plan to do that for you in Christ before he ever formed the world. He did that before he ever formed the world. 1 John 2.12 says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, not for yours. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, we're not talking about some of your sins, are we? Your sins, every single one of them is already forgiven. All of them. The Greek word here is aphiemi. They are sent out. That's what it means. Aphiemi means to send out. Your sins are already sent out. Your sins are already sent away from you. He has sent them away from you. And how far has he sent your sin away from you? Take a look at Psalm 103, 12. What does it say? As far as the East is from the West. That's how far He removes our transgressions from us. He removes your sin. How far is the East from the West? It's infinitely far. Your sins are removed infinitely far from you. It is completely removed. Listen, as He lavishes His grace, as He dunks you in His grace, as He bathes you in His grace and His forgiveness, He moves your sin as far away from you as the East is from the West. Your sin is infinitely removed away from you. But then, because of that truth, remember what I told you about the book of Ephesians? I told you, in fact, this is true of Paul, that practice is always preceded by position, right? So what is going to happen when we get to chapter 4 is Paul is going to say, because this is true, then this is how you ought to behave. And so when we get to chapter 4, you're going to find that he requires something of you for that. Let's take a look at verse 32 and see what that is. Be kind to one another... Tender-hearted, doing what? Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, we've just talked about that. How has he forgiven you? It is in that same way that he has forgiven you that he requires that you forgive others. You see, he has paid your debt for you, and then he has just lavished his forgiveness on you over and over. He has lavished his grace on you. He has removed your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't dwell on it. He doesn't keep going back to it and ruminating on it. He has sent it away. It is gone. It's completely covered, and it is sent out from you an infinite distance away. He has completely removed it from you. Now, in the same tender-hearted way, you yourselves must forgive those who have committed offense against you. That's what the Bible teaches. Compassionately, you bathe them in forgiveness. Compassionately, you free them from the offense. Afiemi, sending it out from them as far as the east is from the west, infinitely far from them. Now listen to me, friends. For you to say that you will not forgive someone including yourself, is to say that you have a higher standard than God. It's to say, well, maybe God's justice is satisfied, but mine's not. Maybe God has been satisfied, but I am not. For you, my friends, a wretched sinner who has been infinitely forgiven of your egregious offense against God to hold a lesser offense against someone else or even yourself in unforgiveness is for you to usurp the authority and the position and the prerogative of the Almighty God. 
It is for you to set your standard as more righteous. It is for you to set your standard as more holy than his. It is for you to say that the satisfaction of your justice requires a higher payment than the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you really want to say that? Do you really want to say that, friends? Because if you do, I want you to understand that it is for you to set yourself up as God in his place. So the Father has redeemed us. He's purchased our freedom with a price. He's purchased our freedom with a currency. And what was that currency? It was the blood. It was the death of Jesus Christ. To what extent? To the same extent as his immeasurable eternal grace. I want to take you now to verse 8, if we could do that. And I want you to see verses 8 and 9. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Did you know that when he redeems us, we gain wisdom and insight. Did you know that? When he restores us, when he buys us out of the marketplace, when he pays the ransom for our freedom, he bestows on us wisdom and insight. The Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. And throughout the ages, Sophia has been one of the things, the greatest object of man's desire. Did you know that? Proverb 4 tells us that we should seek Sophia, we should seek wisdom, and we should seek insight at absolutely any cost, the Proverbs say. It says, seek them, and she will grace your head with a beautiful crown. Seek wisdom, seek discernment, seek Sophia, seek insight. What does the proverb tell us is the beginning of wisdom? In Proverb 9.10 it says, you're right, it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. And what else? The knowledge of the Holy One is what? It's insight. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Friends, listen, fear of the Lord in this context could be thought of as reverence or as worship. So when we are redeemed and we come to a place of reverence or when we come to a place of worship of the Almighty God, I want you to know that we gain wisdom. We gain an understanding of eternal things. We gain an understanding of the things that really matter. We begin to develop an eternal perspective when we are redeemed and we begin to understand the real value of life. We begin to understand the real value of death. We begin to understand the true nature. Hang tight. Now, here's the question. Can I get right back into that same tone? Of man and God. (laughs) Oh, friends, we begin to understand this temporary life in terms of eternity. That is wisdom. You hear me? Yes. When you begin to understand this temporary life in terms of eternity, you're beginning to understand wisdom. Those things are the mysteries. Those are the things that have been hidden from us until we come to a place of awe and reverence and worship of the Almighty God. They're hidden from us. We can't know those things. They're foolishness to us. But this verse says, not only do we gain wisdom, not only do we gain Sophia, but we also gain insight. And another good way to translate that would be prudence. We gain insight or prudence. I think both of those are good translations of this word. We gain prudent and practical understanding of the problems of everyday life. Do you know that? We gain practical understanding of the problems of everyday life. 
We're able to handle the routine affairs of this life with insight and with prudence. So when God comes and he redeems us, when God comes and he forgives us, he equips us with the things that we need to live prudently. He equips us with the things that we need to live with wisdom in this temporary life. He equips us with the things that we need to have an eternal perspective. He doesn't leave you alone to fend for yourselves. He equips you and he prepares you. Did you know that? So what's the point? Why does God do it all? Well, if we go to verse 9 and verse 10, we see, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to do what? Unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He does it so that in the end of time, He does it so that in the end of time, all things will be united and brought together to its completion in Jesus Christ. So that everything will find its fullness and its completion in Jesus Christ. And why does the Father want to do that? Well, that doesn't make sense to me. Why would he want to find, have everything find its completion and its fullness in Jesus Christ? Why would the Father want to do everything and unite them under Jesus Christ? Why would he do that? Well, take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, 28. And this is what it says. It says, when all things are subjected to him... Then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That's just Paul's way of saying, when all things are subjected to Jesus Christ, then Jesus will subject everything to the Father, that God may be all and in all. Ultimately, it's all done that God can be all and in all. Do you see that? It's all done to the glory of God. Look, friends, when you are redeemed through your faith in Jesus Christ, the redemptive plan of God is fulfilled, and God receives glory by being able to take someone like you, a sinner like you, and restore you, a fallen creature, to fellowship with Him. He receives glory for being able to do that. And listen to me, when you forgive others with the same extravagant grace that He used to forgive you, God receives glory for that. God is glorified when you extend that kind of forgiveness, sending the offense as far as the east is from the west. When you lavish forgiveness and grace upon the one who offends you, God receives glory for that. Nobody else could do that in their own power. That can only be done through God. He receives glory. It's all to the ultimate glory of God. I want you to know that that's why he's redeemed you. The reason that he saved you is because it's to his glory. He saved you to his glory. And that's why from the very dawn of time, like we said last week, before he said, let there be light, he said, let me have Nick, let me have Joe, let me have Lori, let me have that one, let me have that one, before it all began. He planned to send Christ on your behalf from the very beginning. He didn't have to ask questions. He didn't have to come here wondering who he was looking for. He came here knowing that he was coming for you. Did you know that? Father, I thank you for your plan of redemption. I thank you that Jesus Christ was obedient even to death on the cross. I thank you that he would pay the price for my freedom. And I thank you that he was willing to pay the ransom that I could be free.